to Susie Calloway, who's speaking today at our Summer Foundation Breakfast Series. But before I actually introduce Lizzie, and really she hardly needs an introduction, I think too many of us here, um, the toilets are just down in the corridor. Please remember to switch off your mobile phones. Um, and just to say that Lizzie's going to talk for about an hour, and then we'll have time for questions and discussion. So if you can make note of your questions along the way, that would be fantastic. So as I said, Libby um, is our speaker today and she is going to be speaking on evaluating models of housing and support for people with acquired brain injury. Most of you would know that Libby wears quite a few hats. Um, she is an occupational therapist, but she somehow splits her time between being a research manager at Summer Foundation, working at Monash University as a lecturer, and providing a private practice in the community. So I don't quite know how she does all of those things, but we're very pleased that um, she does have such a, a broad um, level of experience and interest because we, as the listeners, do get to benefit from that. So without further ado, here's Libby. Thanks, to, Marge. Um, take us away. And Libby's got quite a few formal announcements to I make do. as well. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Firstly, I really want to acknowledge um, the traditional owners of the land on which we are meeting today and pay my respects to their elders, both past and present. Thank you so much for the opportunity for me to present to you all today um, and for getting out of bed so early to come to this lecture. I do love this series from its Vibira days, but I really got here living down in the southern region of Melbourne. It did require me to get up very early, so I really um, thank you all for getting up so early to come this morning. Um, we are going to audio record this morning's presentation, so um, this will be available via podcast um, within the next couple of weeks. And we would like to take a few pictures of the event to put on social media, so if you'd prefer not to be included in those pictures, can you just let our events manager, Joe know before you leave and we'll make sure of that. Um, as Marg said, at the end of today's presentation we'll take some questions and it would be great if you're going to um, ask a question or raise discussion, if you could just say your name and where you're from. Thank you. So um, today, as um, Marg said, I'm going to be talking about some of our more recent work looking at different models of housing and support for people with acquired brain injury. I really want to acknowledge um, that this is a very large piece of teamwork and we have a pretty amazing team um, at the Summer Foundation that have worked on a range of research that I'm going to be presenting today, um, particularly Chris, Sophie, Rosie, Beck, Kerry and Di. Um, and also I have some amazing other colleagues across disciplines that have worked on some of this research that I'll be presenting. I've really tried to represent that. You'll see lots of logos sitting on different studies I'm talking about, but I really want to acknowledge the input of um, my colleagues, Kate Triglowen, Gavin Williams and Ross Clark, Sue Sloan, Barry Willer, Robin Tate, Joanne Tocott, and also my colleagues at the Summer Foundation, Carolyn Finnis and Astrid Reynolds. Carolyn is our um, community relations manager who works with our ambassadors and she works with them to create digital and written stories about their experiences of particularly living in nursing homes but also different models of housing and support um, and you'll see a couple of those today. And Astrid is our innovative housing um, project officer who's working on our housing demonstration. So I just want to acknowledge that there's been a lot of input to this range of discussion that I'm going to be presenting to you today and it's not just my work. I also want to acknowledge funding for ISCA. There are some projects within here that I'll be talking about that have been funded by the Institute for Safety, Compensation and Recovery Research, which is a research body jointly funded by the Transport Accident Commission, WorkSafe and Monash University. 
So I think most of you know about the Summer Foundation, but given a lot of the research I'll be talking about today sits across these domains, I just want to point to the three key things that we do. We focus on research to build an evidence base for policy and practice with young people in nursing homes or those at risk of placement in nursing homes. As I said, we work on housing demonstration models um, to try and look at how we can build new models of housing to increase the range and to evaluate those and their impact um, from the perspective of people living in them. And finally, as I said, we work to create a movement, awareness of the issue of young people in nursing homes. And we have an amazing group of ambassadors that work with us. So today, um, I'm going to talk to you about the issues of housing for people with ABI. And I know they'll be very familiar issues to many of you. I know many of you work clinically with people with ABI or maybe have family experience. Um, and this is probably one of the biggest issues that I think we're facing at this point in time. And we'll be talking about that. Some of the current evidence on housing and support outcomes. Um, and then I'm going to talk a bit about some practical um, options for choosing, I guess, choosing models of housing and support and point you to some tools around that. Um, and then I'm going to talk specifically about our research um, in some a first housing demonstration model that was a collaboration between the Summer Foundation and the Transport Accident Commission in inner city Melbourne. Finally, I just want to touch on the area that I think is the next piece of work that we really need to focus on, which is evaluating new models of support that might be delivered in housing. So I'll be touching on that at the end of today. So I'm sure you may be familiar with this, but I think it's important we keep pointing to the fact that the UN Convention have a right, uh, a Charter of Rights for people with disabilities. And one of the key thing it states is that people should have the opportunity to choose their residence and where and with whom they live on equal basis to others. Australian government ratified that charter. Um, and yet we know that making this right a reality is a really big challenge for many people with disability, not just people with brain injury. Um, the National Disability Insurance Scheme has been designed to provide the equipment and support that people might need, particularly people with ABI, severe ABI will likely be eligible for this scheme when it's rolled out in full in 2018-19 and we're already seeing the benefits of the scheme in the trial sites, particularly for young people in nursing homes. Um, so the scheme has a focus on building social and economic participation of people with disability, taking a focus on their goals and looking at what supports and equipment they may need. But it was never designed to address the housing needs of this group. From a government perspective, that's seen as public and social housing's responsibility. And this is a really big gap and it's going to impact the effectiveness of this scheme um, at this point in time. So again, a number of you in this room I know have worked clinically um, for many, many years and, and over the decades we've seen real changes from, um, for models of housing and support for, for people um, from institutional living through until that community residential or shared supported accommodation model um, to this aspiration now that we can open up a range of options, that we can use individualised funding through a national disability insurance scheme or other individualised support packages to um, really look at what a person would like in, in um, the model of housing and support they choose um, and then be able to harness that with individualised support. Now that's the aspirational focus. As I said, we still aren't seeing that um, on the ground and I'll talk about that. So Bruce Bonahady has talked about this quite a bit. Bruce Bonahady is the chair of the National Disability Insurance Agency. He has talked about the significant housing gap for NDIS participants. We know that there's going to be probably, they're estimating more now around 460,000 people um, 
who will become NDIS participants within the full rollout. We had budget commitment again next, last week that a full rollout will occur. 47% um, of those are on very low to very low incomes. And again, we see this as an issue for people with acquired brain injury. Um, and they will need some housing assistance in order to live in the community. Um, he talks about the fact that um, from the NDIA's perspective, there's an unmet need for accessible and affordable housing of between 83,000 and 122,000 NDIS participants. So this is a major challenge, but it's also, I think, ex exciting and that the NDIS is actually bringing into focus a gap that we've known has been in the system for a very long time. The gap is stark. Um, and certainly what we've seen through some of our past research is that there are, is a really limited option for people with disability to build housing careers where they actually make plans for where they may move and then make choices about their next move um, as their life stages change or circumstances change. <clears throat> and as I said, the NDIS wasn't actually designed to address this housing gap. Um, and th that is an issue that I'm going to be pointing to throughout today, as you've probably already heard. Last week, um, the Federal Government's Senate inquiry into affordable housing um, was completed with the release of a report last Friday. Um, it's gone very much under the radar. Um, it was overshadowed by the budget, which had no commitment to housing in it. Um, we know our state budget from last month had no commitment to housing for people with disability in it either. So this is a really big problem. But what I thought was striking from the inquiry report was um, the, set, the committee was saying that considering the vital importance of housing to a person's overall wellbeing and the current problems gaining access to affordable and appropriate housing, the committee is convinced that access to affordable housing is a matter of national importance. Furthermore, affordable housing should be a national economic issue that needs to be a central and cross-cutting theme of government. There were 40 recommendations that came out of this report and 80% of those re recommendations were rejected by federal government. So um, a majority of those were rejected based on government trying to take a focus on reducing red tape and some of the recommendations were about establishing new initiatives or new committees that would actually try and address some of these housing issues. So not to be the voice of doom, but we still have a lot of work to do in this area and the Senate inquiry in this particular area hasn't really impacted that at this point in time. On your chair today, I left you a copy of V's story. Um, and I think what's really strikes me about V's story is it really does represent some of the issues I've just pointed to you today around the limited choices that face people What's also striking about V's story is that she has been able to self-advocate and secure the support and equipment that she needs. So similar to an NDIS participant, she's been able to actually secure now support and equipment for community living, but she can't afford housing and therefore she doesn't have options to choose from. She's now married and again we see a number of people that we meet through our clinical work or also through our research with young people in nursing homes that are married and partners of school age, uh, partner and children, parents of school aged children and want to therefore live in their own home or with a level of privacy that for V at this point in time she hasn't been able to secure. So I've just left that story with you um, to read at your leisure. So as I said, the NDIS is going to provide some things that we are already seeing in the Barwon and Hunter trial sites are really impacting the choice making and goals and quality of life of young people living in nursing home particularly, and many of that group do have acquired brain injury. 
So uh, we have two connections officers working in um, the two trial sites across Barwon and Hunter. They're actually going to each aged care service in the catchment area, knocking on the door and finding young people living in nursing homes. And they are supporting that person in pre-planning to then to go into an NDIA meeting to look at what they might want to plan for in the context of NDIS funding. Um, so we're seeing um, that there is timely provision for equipment and um, support now for that group in the trial sites. And with the further rollout, and there's been further announcement of additional trial sites just last week, um, we will see more people getting access to the funding. We're still seeing delay then in um, supply of equipment, so timing for supply of equipment, timing um, for implementing supports is still an issue for this group and people do need support around that. For many people this is the first time they've had an opportunity to think about what might be possible um, and certainly we're seeing that connections officer role is really important to assist a person to prepare and really think about the range of um, options that might be possible in their life. The NDIA have also spoken about the fact that they have got a significant budget allocation to use a cost of capital contribution, which is that additional cost beyond um, standard housing that relates to the customised um, design needs of a person with significant and permanent disability. But they are still working out how to actually deliver on that and how they can best leverage that to try and stimulate the housing market. So it's a bit of an unknown area. We have been waiting on a housing um, policy report from the NDIA for about 18 months now and it has been delayed. We are aware that it's been finalised, but it still hasn't been released. The other thing we're seeing in the trial sites now through our Connections um, Officer project roles is that um, the local area coordinators are taking a significant focus on um, supporting um, people with disability in planning also. Um, so we are seeing them as a good resource that we can work with to try and assist particularly our target group, young people um, living in nursing homes or at risk of placement, um, to harness the supports and equipment that they need through an NDIS. So there, is, there are some really good things coming out of the trial sites, but that gap is housing. Earlier this year, um, there was a Senate inquiry into adequacy of existing residential care for young people um, with significant and permanent disability, and this had a focus, therefore, on young people in nursing homes. We supported a range of people with disability and their families to develop submissions for, um, um, for that Senate inquiry and to present at the Senate inquiry hearings. Um, those submissions are available in the public domain, but I just wanted to point you to some of the thinking of some of the um, people that we heard from in those Senate inquiries. This was from an NDIS participant who lives in the Hunter region um, and has been able to move out of a nursing home and into what he described as an age-appropriate group home um, with funding from the NDIS. We heard from a family um, that talked about the fact that they want accommodation that instils a sense of independence, is age appropriate and allows the flexibility to simply live the way a person wants to. And we heard from Aaron who has actually also moved um, into shared supported accommodation and talked about the importance of um, the um, home modifications and adaptions that have been made that help him to be independent and participate in his home and community life as much as possible. Um, certainly for Aaron, he was identifying that he was enjoying that shared environment and he was more active than he's been previously living in a nursing home. 
So um, this is a quote that Sue Sloan and I talk about quite often as being absolutely key to a focus of, of what we want to try and achieve in supporting people with brain injury. And that is that ideally there should be a range of accommodation options available to people so that there's a continuum of support provided as a person regains skills and abilities, a move to more appropriate accommodation and support can follow. So those housing careers can follow. The problem with most existing services is they're seen as institutions of a final destination rather than a step in a pathway of choice. But in order for people to have choice, there need to be a range of options. Um, but certainly what we've seen through our clinical work is that you can assist people to build social life roles, to develop skills that actually underpin those roles. Um, and we've written quite a lot about that in a community approach to participation model that Sue Diewinkler and I have developed. Um, and so certainly we're seeing that there is capacity to assist people to actually transition over accommodation over time if they have different models that are suitable for them to transition to. So specifically for people with ABI, and again this is not new information to you, we continue to see that people either return to home-like settings, often with structured support, whether that's family support or paid support or a mix of both, or else they enter a fairly small range of disability specific models at the moment. Um, so most often shared supported accommodation, cluster units, um, group home models or residential aged care. And for this group particularly, um, we know that um, private rental or purchase is often unattainable due to very low incomes. So it really further restricts the option available to people. That lack of um, adequate options and support and also early intervention, and this is something that the NDIS are trying to focus on. So people that are perhaps newly have an acquired disability um, really does impact admission to both mental health and criminal justice systems as well as aged care. So if we can intervene earlier with an NDIS being delivered um, in the future, the aim would be that we can provide that early intervention that helps people to avoid aged care placement, to work um, and achieve goals that are important to them and perhaps avoid some of these more negative outcomes. But we also do know that there's still over 6,000 people aged under 65 living in aged care nationally um, and our research has shown um, that a majority of those have acquired or late onset neurological disability. The main pathway for people into aged care after acquired brain injury is an acute hospital stay. Um, and we've been doing quite a lot of work um, to, to talk to hospital discharge planners about how we might assist them to look at a range of pathways from, from health rather than straight into aged care. At this point in time, I'm just going to um, show you a brief story of Amadou, who I think really captures um, some of the challenges for people with acquired brain injury, as well as some of the opportunities that we can consider. I just have to go to another setting.
Amadou arrived in Australia 12 years ago from Ghana with a young family to start a new life. While driving his taxi one day, Amadou suffered a stroke and after two years in hospital and rehabilitation, Amadou returned to live in the family home. After a year of living with his family, the complexity of family life and learning to live with the effects of the stroke became too much. The decision was made that Amadou would move into an aged care nursing home. Life in the nursing home was challenging and affected Amadou's relationship with his children. They found it difficult to visit their father there. Amadou did his best to get out and about each day as he found the nursing home isolating. He avoided making friends with fellow residents as older residents passed away so regularly. Instead, he spent the time in the nursing home in his room and this pattern continued for five years. One of the nurses in the facility saw potential for Amadou to live more independently and helped him to begin to make plans to explore alternatives. With support from the case manager, Amadou began to plan his move out of the nursing home. After eight months of planning and determination, Amadou moved into his own apartment. The apartment is fully accessible to allow Amadou to undertake daily tasks such as laundry and meal preparation. Each morning and evening, Amadou receives an hour of support to assist with more complex tasks and also receives some support hours during the week to attend activities. Moving into the apartment has allowed Amadou to once again undertake his most important role, that of a father. With his children, Amadou is able to spend time as a family in his apartment or visit the local park or shops. Amadou continues to work on regaining his independence and has achieved a lot in a short time. He does his own supermarket shopping, heads to football to watch Carlton play regularly and attends a men's group each week. For Amadou, the potential risks associated with living without 24-hour care are outweighed by being able to live independently in his own unit. Now I've just got to get back to my presentation, sorry. Okay. So I guess I just wanted to point to that. Um, Amadou has been willing to share his story as part of a housing toolkit that we've developed to assist people to think about opportunities for planning, support and um, particularly roles they'd like to pursue and as I talked about previously, those skills that underpin those that are necessary to think about the next step in a housing career. Um, 
so from here, what I want to take you to is um, a review that um, myself, Di, Sue and our colleagues did um, in 2013, which looked at um, a systematic review on what evidence exists around models of housing and support for people with traumatic brain injury. And there were two key objectives to that. Um, the first was to describe the characteristics of supported accommodation models internationally that we could find in the literature. And the second was to look at the effect of those models on outcomes for people with brain injury. So um, from our very specific search criteria, there are a total of um, 4,127 articles that we identified. And when we um, screened them by abstract, there were 382 that, um, that um, sorry, th when we screened by abstract, there were 382 that went to a full text screen based on our inclusion criteria, looking at those two objectives. Um, from Once we looked at the full text articles, the, uh, 313 of those didn't meet our criteria and 68 did describe models of housing and support um, for people with brain injury. But in relation to looking at um, articles that actually looked at evidence of the impact of those models on outcomes, there are only six studies that we could find. So we certainly know that this is a big evidence gap now. So we talk about the fact that we need a range of options. We talk about um, the fact that um, we need um, to work with people to plan um, for what they would like. But we also know there's fairly limited evidence um, in the research driving, driving our practice. There's certainly quite a lot of clinical work, um, evidence that we use um, in our support to people. So as I said, there's a limited body of literature and a dearth of evidence. Um, and I guess from there, what we really started to think about was how we could start to build this evidence base. And so over the last two years, um, we've been working on that. And I'm now going to talk to you a little bit about some of that work. The first step I want to talk to you about is a piece of work we did um, looking at the community integration questionnaire, which is a measure of home, social and productive activity. Um, so it looks at things like volunteerism, work and study, as well as people's participation in their home and social activities. We know an NDIS has been designed to impact the social and economic participation of people with disability. And certainly clinically and in research, we've used the CIQ um, over many years to look at outcomes with people over time. And also as a goal setting tool to look at what people are involved in that they enjoy doing, what they aren't involved in that they would like to do um, and make plans around that. So um, we have been working with Barry Willer and our colleagues here um, to revise that tool, um, to particularly um, look at um, adding a subscale that will measure people's use of electronic social networking. We know there's a growing um, usage of um, internet-based social networking for social contact, and I'm certainly seeing that clinically in my work too. And so we have extended that tool now to include a subscale that looks at that particular domain for social participation. We then went on to gather um, normative data. So um, we um, used the CIQ revised measure, including that new subscale, with a sample of um, 2,000 people, um, 27 of which ended up identifying as having a disability, so were excluded. And we gathered normative data by age, gender, living situation and location. And from there, what we were able to do was to use that normative data to look at what are the differences in outcomes for people with brain injury compared to people in that normative sample. Um, and as I said, clinically we've known for many years that um, outcomes do differ and that people are less integrated, but having this normative data has allowed us to do some new work that really does point to now areas that I think we need to focus on. 
So um, we used the normative data um, with a sample of 61 people with severe brain injury um, that had been living with their injury for many years. And we took each participant in that um, group of people with TBI and matched them to four participants in the normative sample on their gender, age, uh, metropolitan or regional residence location, and whether they were living with someone else or by themselves. And we could then look at the differences in outcomes. And I mean, as it will not surprise you, certainly what we saw that across all domains of, of community and home participation, that people with traumatic brain injury were significantly less integrated into those domains than people in the normative sample matched on those characteristics. So what we could then do was really start to look at the risk ratios of outcomes for people with brain injury. Um, and what that led to show was that people with brain injury living in the community, whether that's in shared supported accommodation or in their own homes with support, were over five times more likely to report lower community integration outcomes across all those domains than that matched sample. And that people um, with ABI living in RAC, we had a, a sample of 64 people in that group, were 7.7 times more likely to re um, experience reduced community integration. And when we, so when you look at that by living situation, what you can see here is that compared to the four matched normative um, participants to one person with brain injury, that certainly we were seeing matched on those demographic characteristics that the brain injury coupled with the model of housing and support was going to impact outcomes for this group. If you're living in aged care, you're going to see lowest participation across, across home, social and productive activities. Um, followed by SSA or living in your own home. And again, in the social context, it certainly makes sense that if you're living with family support or in close proximity to family support, you're likely to have more contact with them. But certainly, I guess what we think this really points to now is that we need to start to look at how we can improve outcomes across all of these different living situations. So, with that knowledge, um, what I want to go on to now is some of the more practical work we've been doing to look at how you support people to think about what might be possible and also some of the work the NDIA are doing to, do, to um, support people in planning. So people are going to continue to enter aged care up until the full NDIS rollout and probably beyond it based on the housing shortage for this group. Um, we know that. And people are going to continue to live in shared supported accommodation. For some, we hear from people that that would be a preference over more um, um, integrated models of housing and support or living on their own. Um, and particularly from families, we have talked to many who, who would really prefer that line of site support. People will also um, continue to return to live with family. And clinically, I guess what we see, and particularly when I was working in inpatient settings, was that often people needed to try that step to take a family member home before then the family unit would think about other options. Um, so that is still going to happen too. So given those things will still be happening for people with brain injury, the other thing we think we need to do is look at demonstrating other models of housing in addition to that. And we need to think about how we can support people across all those different settings <coughs> to achieve the things they want to achieve in community living. So for the Summer Foundation specifically, we've been focusing on demonstration housing projects. And as I said, Astrid um, Reynolds is the key person that's been working on this area. Um, for us, we know this isn't the only solution and it's not the solution for everyone. But what we're focusing on is individual units peppered throughout a well-located apartment building 
that has really sound universal de design that's um, accessible but also can be adaptable over time or for different tenants. Um, and embedding that communication and home automation technology within the housing. And taking a very strong focus on the support approach, making sure that um, it is individualised, it's got a strong focus on community participation and home participation, but also is balanced with the efficiencies of, of being in close proximity to some of those apartments peppered within the larger residential development. And there is that 24-hour support. So um, I guess what Astrid's been focusing on is working with specific support providers over an initial two-year period to set up the model and for us to then evaluate that, but also partnering with community housing organisations for that property and tenancy management. So the first project the Summer Foundation was involved in was um, in inner city Melbourne, um, and that was delivered in 2013. And that was a collaboration um, with Common Equity Housing and the Transport Accident Commission. So you may be familiar with this model. Um, TAC purchased four apartments in a 59 residential and social apartment development and the Summer Foundation purchased two. They're on different floors. Um, the Summer Foundation apartments are accessed via a lift which poses a range of considerations. Um, and as it, we've ended up with infrared control of that lift for people, for the tenants to be able to get in and out of it. Um, there's sharing of support across the six apartments via a staffing hub that's provided in the downstairs area underneath um, an entry point. And I've been involved in evaluating that model with my colleagues in the Monash and Summer Foundation Research Unit. We're now moving on with the Summer Foundation to a second model that's in the Hunter region. So it's in an NDIS trial site and I guess this provides an opportunity to demonstrate how you might work with the NDIA to actually harness funding through the scheme um, to provide support within integrated models of housing. So this is a model um, in Newcastle. It's um, due to open later this year and the Summer Foundation have philanthropic funding to purchase 10 apartments in this 100 apartment development and it's a private residential development. So that will be ready for occupancy later this year. Again, those same principles that I just spoke to you are being applied in this model, the same evaluation frameworks being built around it. Um, but certainly the key focus for Astrid and her team has been working with the NDIA to establish how you use individualised funding um, within people's own apartments, providing that hub of outreach support across those 10 apartments which are peppered throughout this 100 apartment development and also how you fund integrated technologies within housing. Now when they're not actually um, directly linked to an individual, that causes problems with an individualised funding model. But certainly if you're going to build really accessible housing, you need to actually ensure there's integrated home automation technology built within it and you may not necessarily know who is the person going to end up tenanting that apartment. So that's been an area they've been focusing on. So what I'd like to do now is talk to you about some of the research we've been delivering within that first housing demonstration model in Melbourne. Uh, and I'm going to talk to you about some key domains uh, or areas that we've been looking at. Firstly, transition planning. And then I'm going to talk to you about some evaluation of built and technology design and the housing location for people with disability living in that model. And then look at home and community participation. And finally, I'm going to talk about um, the model of support delivered. So in relation to transition planning, I just wanted to point you to a free resource on the Summer Foundation website that we developed um, when the NDIS was launched. Um, it's a writable PDF toolkit for people with disabilities and their families that can be downloaded for free from the website. 
and it's focused on looking with people at what they want um, to achieve in their daily life, in life roles, in skill development. It's got um, some digital stories of different housing models. Amadou's is one of those for people to think about. Um, and yeah, if that's useful in your clinical practice, please feel free to download it. What we've seen more recently and really only in the last couple of months is in the NDIS launch or trial sites um, that the NDIA have been developing some planning tools with people that look at transition into the scheme and also consider some of those elements of housing and support models. So this will be a little bit difficult for you to read but it's a checklist um, for people to consider in that planning process and then quite a detailed planning um, sheet which the planner brings into a planning session with the NDIS participant that looks across informal supports, community and mainstream supports, disability supports, a person's needs and their goals. Now, um, I'll provide the links to these um, just if you want to have a look at them. Certainly our connections officers are finding them to be a really useful tool in assisting young people in nursing homes to think about what an NDIS might offer them. So uh, as part of our research in looking at that first demonstration housing project for the TAC, um, we firstly did a literature review of what evidence there is on effective transition planning across accommodation models for people with brain injury. So certainly there's quite a bit of research around regarding the experience of transition from hospital to home for people with brain injury. Um, and the references are at the end of this presentation today and these slides will be available. But certainly little is known about the transition experience of people with brain injury across accommodation settings or principles of the transition planning that might be applied to optimise outcomes. So we did a literature review from 1990 to 2014 and we identified 134 articles that really looked at that specific area of transition across accommodation settings once a person had returned to community living and only four articles met our inclusion criteria. So it's not an area that's been strongly looked at in the literature. Certainly we know clinically it's been focused on quite a bit in our community practice um, and this is an area we want to look at a bit more, particularly for people moving into that demonstration housing model in inner city Melbourne. So there were three key aims of this piece of work and my colleague Rosie Miller and Chris Millerini have worked with me on this. The first was to evaluate people's expectations for transition into this new model of housing that was being developed. The second was to actually look at their actual experiences, three months and then 12 months post-move, what worked well, what didn't work well, what could be improved, what should stay the same, and really try and then make recommendations around how transition planning can be approached, particularly um, for the people that we met, they were moving from more supported models, so most often shared supported accommodation or living with family, into their own apartment in this larger residential development. So it was a big step. As I said, we did interviews at pre-move um, with people about their expectations and then three months and 12 months post-moves. Um, and what really came out of that, um, the TAC and Summer Foundation have invested quite heavily um, in um, transition planning through a role of a transition planner secured from the um, support agency providing support, Anecdo providing support at that model. Um, and certainly what the tenants were saying was that the role of transition planner was really key to them um, in thinking about how they were going to move to this new model of housing, testing out new roles in preparation for moving um, and then some, making some priorities around how they were going to spend their time. For these people, they were living with neurotrauma. Um, sometimes spending time in meal prep took away time from other things and it was about trying to make decisions about where they could best place their time to um, live with maximum um, participation at a, at a level that they wanted. 
Um, certainly we saw with that transition planning that the initial focus in transition was on the home-based activities and that um, at three months post-move um, the tenants were talking about the fact that they were more involved in meal preparation, shopping and organising social events but that they weren't heavily involved in their new community just yet. And again, for anyone moving home, it is quite a stressful thing and it makes sense to take that focus. What we wanted to look at was those sort of 12 month outcomes and I'll show you those in a minute. Um, the same problems that we see in the workforce um, occurred in this model and, and probably, you know, it, it is not surprising to you. Um, for some tenants they spoke about in transition, having agency staff was very problematic for them. Um, and they, they did, the agency did set up fortnightly meetings with tenants to look at how things were working for them, what was working well, and certainly that was necessary to address some of those issues arising. Um, the tenants were involved in choice of their staff, they interviewed staff and they found that really valuable and something new in their experience. Um, and certainly with the technology that was integrated into the housing, what we saw at three months post move was that people um, had had some occasional failures of the technology, particularly the call system to get staffing support and that was extremely anxiety provoking for them, um, understandably. Um, and that was something that, that people were reverting back to their old systems of, of contacting staff or using a mobile phone um, because they weren't necessarily confident the technology would work after perhaps only one failure. Um, so certainly that was an area that we talked about to the TAC and Summer Foundation about the need to test technology to ensure people know how to use it, that they have backup systems um, so they feel confident in the technology as a, as a replacement to that line of sight support they might have been living with for a number of years. This housing is really well located and I'll show you some of that data in a minute. Um, but what the tenants were talking about was this, um, the options for them to go out shopping using their motorised wheelchair. They were all using motorised wheelchairs in this study. Um, someone had started volunteer work. Um, someone else was um, heading to the sporting precinct close to this inner city location. And they were 50 metres from a very accessible train station and you'll see some of their usage um, that they found was very beneficial. What was interesting at 12 months post um, post transition was talking to people about their longer term plans and we talked to some participants who were like you know I'm going to stay here forever I love it but some people were now also now saying actually I think I like this but I can see that this location may not be for me and I might take the next step so certainly there was some variation in what people were thinking about in their long term plans but really positive to hear people thinking about longer term plans for um, community living. There are small 18 recommendations for transition planning that I'm just going to whip through. Um, <laughs> certainly that transition planner role was really key and I'm going to talk to you about what the NDIA are looking at in that space. Um, visits um, to the new home and local community prior to moving seem to be really valuable to people and it's something I know clinically we do um, but I think it's really important to focus on that if people are going to tra transition to a new community. And starting as early as possible was the absolute key one. Um, we've just started um, evaluating a second housing model TAC have developed out in Lilydale and um, that transition was done fairly quickly and at Christmas time and we're seeing some of the really significant problems in that. Um, uh, individual involvement in staff selection was really seen as a value to the person and a new experience for these tenants and I think that's something we should make a goal for all of um, our service delivery. Um, the training in the technologies used for home automation and particularly for calling staff off-site um, 
was really important and needed to be done over time. What we saw was there was some initial investment in training up to three months post-move, but what we've really recommended is that actually there needs to be that intermittent review of training to ensure people are using that technology as much as possible. Um, a local um, access audit of the neighbourhood is important. This is an inner city location. It has cobblestone streets. There are some gutters that um, one of the tenants spoke about getting stuck on with his tipper wheels on his motorised wheelchair, but he was able to work out a route of travel that is safer from his perspective to get to where he wants to get to in his community. So that access audit with the person that's going to move to the model is really important. And then mobility training. For these particular models, um, I guess what um, Astrid has spoken about is that um, they are probably better suited to people that have an identified goal for more independent living. Um, and that if that is the focus of the model, that that needs to be consistently and repeatedly um, discussed both with the person and staff. We saw some staff coming from shared supported accommodation into this model and for some staff they found it hard to move from a model of providing 24-hour daily support to actually trying to downgrade that support over time, so that was fairly key. Um, for this model particularly, people were living in their own apartment on their own um, and planning for home-based ledger or strategies to manage loneliness was really important and it came through quite strongly in the transition planning feedback. Um, there were some tenants that would actually call staff just because they wanted to interact with someone and it was about working with them to think about what other options have you got for social contact now that you're living in your own home. Um, probably something was really interesting as I said we saw people pre-move and then three and 12 months post-move and at three months post-move we were seeing some staff practices um, that really weren't ideal, things like entering the person's home without knocking. Um, and we were able to provide some really specific feedback to the agency and it was addressed very rapidly. Um, and certainly that sort of auditing of how things are going from the perspective of the model aspirations and also the delivery of support by daily staff was fairly key and this agency was very keen to focus on that and they've done a lot of work to try and really build that um, model of support so that those sort of um, I guess lack of boundaries around a person's home don't exist anymore. Agency staff is a big issue and I know we see this across the sector. It was still an issue in these models and how you minimise them. Um, structuring routine support, um, the really good thing about the transition planning um, officer that was involved in this project was that she also met with people, as I said, on a fortnightly basis to look at how they were structuring their routines, um, where they wanted support provided, what time they wanted support provided and how it related to the other activities in their week. And that consistent focus over time seemed to be very helpful. Um, we had two participants in this study that really had some significant ongoing healthcare issues and they needed very targeted and proactive healthcare planning um, and then a focus on skill development as well. This housing was located in a very good area with good access to a lot of range of different services and, and community um, groups but certainly that local service engagement is key to focus on in transition planning and that community linking to the new neighbourhood. Um, and as I said, those regular reviews over time, not just in the first few months, but over time are fairly key if you're going to maintain the aspirations of these models over time. And a problem-solving approach. Probably the last one that came up was just this folk, the need to actually work with um, the support network around the person prior to transition to look at what their hopes and concerns are for the model, 
We did hear when we interviewed the tenants after their move that they had, so some of them, family had been really, really concerned about this transition. Um, and for each of these participants, it, it was a successful transition. We saw five of the six tenants in this model. Um, but from their perspective, it had been a very successful transition. But they spoke about the fact that um, perhaps some of the staff in their um, past living environment or family were really expressing a lot of concern about whether they would cope in the new model. And we, I think we need to really take a focus on that and look at what other perspectives of people around the person, because they spoke about that being quite anxiety provoking um, and obviously putting some doubt into the person about whether this was the right decision. And for some people it may not be the right decision and they might decide that actually they're gonna to move to another setting or back to where they were. But certainly for this um, group of people, um, the model ha is working up now to for the TAC clients, we've now got 18 month post move data with them. Um, and for the Summer Foundation clients, they've only been in the model for, um, we're about to get 12 month data with them. So for the NDIA, I guess we've been talking to them about um, the need to focus on transition planning. Um, if you are going to look at assisting people to move across models, and particularly our focus with the NDIS is young people moving out of nursing homes, that there does need to be a focus on transition planning. The NDIA have built in some light items relating to accommodation and tenancy assistance, but they are costed at it, in a quite a low hourly rate if you're going to secure them from a private provider that's going to need to meet overheads. So the current hourly rate for transition planning would probably be deliverable within an agency, but finding an agency that might be able to deliver that work, particularly in the trial sites of Bow and, and Hunter, is quite problematic from what we're hearing on the ground. So I think in the context of planning within an NDIS, it will be looking at what are the person's goals, what support will they need, and within the items that are available through the NDIS, how are we going to deliver that? And that's something the Summer Foundation is really tackling now with the NDIA to have that focus. So the next thing I'm going to talk about is um, the built and technology design in that model and its housing location and how we evaluated those, particularly with a focus on tenants' experiences. So we used a post-occupancy evaluation framework and I want to acknowledge again my colleagues from Monash Arts Design and Architecture, particularly Kate Treglowen, who worked with me on this study, um, examining the effectiveness of the environments that were built in this new model from the perspective of the tenants themselves. Um, and look, that really looked at both the physical factors as well as the environmental and social, uh, the organisational and social factors that might um, affect um, transition into this new model and the experience of the built design and technology design. Um, so post-occupancy evaluation is a careful and systematic approach to looking at built design and we obviously had integrated technology in this housing too so we looked at that as well. It's rarely used and so it was really exciting to get the opportunity to actually look in quite, quite a level of detail at the user's experience of the built design and technology design in that demonstration housing project. So there were four aims of this particular piece of work um, and we were really looking, as I said, at built design as well as the technologies um, and trying to look at those elements of the design that were enablers or barriers to participation for the tenants and try and therefore um, draw on those findings to inform the project briefing for the Summer Foundation and TAC in relation to both their building briefing documents that they give to architects and designers, as well as their technology briefing documents they give to the technologists working on the integrated technology. <coughs> 
So I guess some of the interesting findings, and I haven't covered them all in here, but probably one of the really interesting findings was particularly in this model, there was a very significant investment on accessible and adaptable design. But what we found was that um, once a person moved in, they understandably had a strong focus on furnishing it as a home-like environment. But what we saw was that people actually often furnished themselves out a lot of, the, lot of the access within the housing. Um, so you can see here, um, this is a representation of where people, the white indicates people could do a 360 degree turn in their apartment. Um, the greyish indicates that they could um, move forward and backwards in their wheelchair. Um, the darker grey is reaching only and the green is no access. So you can see, particularly in this living space, is a nice example of where someone's put a really lovely L-shaped couch, a coffee table and a dining table, and this is the TV space, but effectively they've really furnished themselves out of a lot of their living room. Um, in contrast, you can see this particular apartment where a person's gone with quite a narrow table, a single chair, and therefore has a more significant 360 degree movement space. Um, so I think this is an area we need to focus on and we're just about to publish a, um, a things to consider document we're calling it for people that might be moving to new models of housing and support and their families in thinking about how you approach furnishing or laying out your home to maintain maximum access over time. Um, the other thing we looked at is where support's delivered and how the design of the housing actually impacts the support that's delivered. Um, so you can see this is that apartment A where this is where the person would mainly sit to watch their television off to the side of their television if they were going to do that. They'd access this into the dining table, this side of the, the breakfast bench um, and this was their main occupation space. For this person they needed very high levels of physical support and they were receiving full support across a range of different areas indicated by these dark green um, um, circles. What you can also see though, this is the front entrance to the apartment, if you think about design, when people were coming in, the support staff needed to come right into the home, move all the way down to come into the bathroom to deliver support. So bathrooms, as we know, for people with high physical support needs become very public spaces. Um, and if, in, going back to that previous design, if you look at this model, this is the front entrance to this apartment C and here's the entrance to the bathroom. So when we saw where support was delivered for this person, staff could enter here, go into the bathroom, go into the bedroom, and really didn't need to access these other areas. So I think we can look at how we build um, design to allow for spaces of privacy as, as well as those public spaces. Um, with my colleagues um, Gavin and Ross from ACU and um, Epworth and University of Melbourne, we looked at, with permission of the people living in this model, some GPS tracking of where they were going from their home into the community. And I guess what I really wanted to point to with this piece of work was it did really highlight the benefit of housing being located to very accessible public transport. This is the data from a person that had previously lived out in another region of Melbourne, was now living in inner city Melbourne, and you can see was using the train to actually travel out to a shopping centre to have a coffee with a friend that he used to see regularly when he lived in that neighbourhood. And when I spoke to him about this, he found it of real benefit that it was a low cost option, accessible, he could do it without support using his motorised wheelchair, but it allowed him to get back to his old community, which it hadn't been a choice for him to stay in that community. 
So the GPS data was interesting to look at, particularly in relation to public transport, but also in relation to services. So we could see that um, there's a small, uh, a very accessible new shopping centre just in this area here, and we could see people moving in and out of that to do their grocery shopping. And when we spoke to people, they had found by 12 months post-move they could do that without direct support because they were able to get out their front door using their home automation equipment, they were able to travel in their local community using their motorised wheelchair on a route of travel that they found accessible um, and they could get in and out of those shops. So in that context of that audit for transition planning it's fairly key to consider. With the permission of the person, we were also able to get the back-end data of what home automation technology they were using. And um, so this is a log of what people were controlling using their iPad or iPhone controlled home automation. So things like opening their bedroom door, the entry door to their home, pressing for assistance for staff, which is called the duress button. We suggested that maybe on the interface it could be changed from duress to just, I'd like a hand. Um, <laughs> entry, um, entry doors and so on. So what was really useful with this was we could actually look at across the different people that agreed to um, have us look at their um, assistive technology use. We could see the differences in frequency of usage and the type of buttons that were being used. used. Um, and when I spoke to these two people that have much lower usage rates than this person and looked at um, what buttons they were using, for one of them I said, you know, we've noticed in that um, period of sampling um, your data from the server that you've never actually opened the blinds using your iPad. And he said, oh, I didn't know I could open the blinds using the iPad. And look, when I checked with TAC, they had received that training, but this is a person with acquired brain injury that has memory impairment and new learning issues. And so that consistent training over time and revisiting with people, what are you using, what aren't you using, is really important to help to build people's skills and grade their use of technology in their home. And that relates to lots of other assistive technology that we implement for people too. Um, I've what we did do, um, again with my input of my colleague Kate um, Tregloan from Architecture, was develop some de-identified virtual tours of housing. I'm just going to show you one because what we would really like to do is help people with disability and their families and designers and, and allied health professionals to think about the, the decisions you make around designing housing and how that uh, is impacted by the actual physical ability of a person. So I'm just going to show you one of those tours very quickly. So these are model tours, so it's not the furniture that was in people's homes. But what it allows you to do is, number one, have a look around a modelled environment that has the same floor plan as what was delivered in this housing. Um, and then you can actually use, there's a little um, resident um, experience slider that you can use here to actually look at what the person living in this particular model could reach or couldn't reach and where they were receiving support. So for this person in this kitchen, they were able to fully reach and access the oven door, the microwave sitting below it. Um, sorry, I'm going to try and get rid of those. Um, but they weren't able to reach into the sink. Um, in contrast, if you look at this person 
who was able to move from sitting to standing and also had a galley design kitchen. So I had a long linear kitchen in contrast to an L-shaped kitchen. And again, all of these people were using, um, were using um, motorised wheelchairs to move around. Um, if you look at his ability to reach, you can see that in sitting, um, he could reach all areas. Um, I'm sorry, these don't normally come up. These are just little hot spots to, to point you to other areas of the report that you can go and have a look at. Um, but he could actually, um, he could reach all areas of his sink and therefore needed less support. He was only needing very intermittent support from staff versus that full support in the kitchen environment. If you look at this participant, and again, a modelled environment based on his reach, you can see that um, he, again, was using a large motorised wheelchair. Um, this is where the microwave originally was. He couldn't get that open, so he moved it up onto the bench. But based on this L-shaped design, he could only reach the very edge of the microwave. Um, and so certainly what the Summer Foundation particularly have been considering is um, how you not only make accessible design but then allow it to be very flexible and adaptable once you know who's actually going to live in that housing. Um, and that's a challenge I think we face in housing design at this point in time. That report is available through ISCA and um, it is a very large package um, with the virtual tours so we're actually just trying to work out how we best share that. We're probably going to put that on the ISCA website so people can look at the tours um, through the ISCA website. So in summary, in looking at some of that built design and technology design, what we saw was that site planning and the, particularly the context of the housing close to services was really key to some of the uh, very enabling um, aspects of this housing for people's home and community participation. The training environmental control <coughs> excuse me, was really important with that early planning but also ongoing training and monitoring of what people were and weren't using and whether they needed further training. Resident selection and tailored modification was one of the challenges as I just showed you briefly in those tours. Um, do you hold off on some of the fit out of joinery until you know who is actually going to go into a particular apartment, particularly in development of affordable housing which will be the government's focus? Or do you actually design and then, and then do customisation after that and it's working out the cost benefit on that? And then finally, that furnishing of the home really impacts access. So we do need to work with people to think about um, how they can make the, a home their home um, in a way that's going to work for them to use it at the maximum level of access that they would want and need. Um, but I guess finally uh, what I wanted to point to in this was that um, that exemplary built and technology design, which really has been delivered in this model, um, really alone doesn't influence outcomes for people with brain injury and you'll see a little bit later some of the focus on um, the support model and what I think we need to do in that space. So I'm just going to go on to show you some of the outcome data for the tenants living in that first demonstration model. What have been the changes in their home and community participation? So as I said, we saw people pre-move for this particular study as well and then we saw them at 6, 12 and 18 months post-move. We've only got six-month data on the Summer Foundation tenants at this stage and, only, and we're at 18-month data on the TAC tenants. Um, so what we did see, um, and again, I can only give you descriptive data because it's such small numbers. So um, I've only included people with neurotrauma in this. So there was one other participant who had a physical disability that I haven't included. Um, but what we saw was that people are more involved in their home and particularly productive activities um, on moving to the new model with that integrated model of support, the technology enabled environment. 
So we saw for participant one, who had some significant health issues and some hospitalisation, that there was an initial increase, particularly in home participation. By 12 months, some of that had dropped off because he'd been quite unwell, but that at 18 months, that had picked back up again, and particularly his participation in home-based activities and his commencement in some new life roles in productive activities um, had really increased his um, community integration. For participant two, we saw significant changes. This is someone that was living with family and then went to live in his own apartment. So there was a significant change in his participation just from moving to the new environment and it stayed fairly stable over time. For participant three, we saw a reduction in his participation on the move to the new home. He was someone that, he was a person I showed you with that L-shaped kitchen at the end that really the design wasn't working well for him compared to his previous kitchen design. And there's been quite a lot of modifications to that kitchen since that time. And you can see that, that sent those modifications, which were delivered after that six month time point, have particularly increased his participation in his home um, environment. And then participant four um, is a Summer Foundation participant that we've only got two, two data time points on. As far as life roles, we saw for some people, they increased their life role participation. Some people um, reduced their life role participation at times, particularly relating to health issues. Um, and for some people, they stayed the same. Uh, and again, that's what we've seen in other research too. But in the context of um, home and community participation, we saw that well-located housing did assist people to develop particularly a focus on things like religious participation, um, as well as... Um, involvement in studies. So one person started studying. Um, I know that another participant did start volunteerism between six months and 12 months post move, uh, post data collection, but in the end um, had ceased that before we saw them again. So that testing out a new life roles is important too. We used a choice making measure to look at people's involvement in their choice making and we did see in their own home they were experiencing um, a greater ability to make daily choices in relation to the time they went to bed, the t timing of showers, um, choices around meals they had. Um, and again, that has increased but now stabilised fairly much. Probably, I think, a key thing to focus on though with this group of people that we've met is that their social networks maintain, most often are still fairly depleted. And again, we see in the, the TBI research that people um, often have lose friendships or um, have difficulty maintaining new friendships after brain injury. Um, but we're certainly seeing for people um, that there's been changes in their interaction with um, family. So this measure is a love and social network scale. It looks at people's contact, frequency of contact with family, neighbours and friends. And we're still seeing um, that a score of under 40 indicates a level of social isolation. And we're seeing that as still being fairly a significant issue for these four people. Um, just finally, we did look at domains that were identified through stakeholder interviews, um, domains or areas that there was a focus um, on within this particular housing model, a focus on building independence, community integration, home-like environments, support, also offering an effective workplace to staff, flexibility. These colours indicate a rating scale and certainly based on all of the measures that we used, which I haven't gone through all today, we saw good performance of this model against most, um, most of the um, areas examined, except for that intuitive use, particularly of the technology. Certainly there was more work that was needed around that. 
and connection with neighbours. This was an integrated housing model with, with apartments peppered, but we were hearing from the tenants as well as picking up through some of the quantitative data collection that they still had fairly limited contact with neighbours. Now again, in some, we know you can move into one street and you can have a, very, a lot of social contact with neighbours, you can move to another neighbourhood and see almost no one, but certainly for the people we were interviewing, they were saying that they did want that contact and probably maybe that was an experience also coming from living in shared models where you actually had more incidental contact. So it was a particular area to consider was how you build social contact for people when they are living alone. These are some of the quotes from people. Um, certainly um, that idea of it being my home and looking more homely, um, setting it up as my home was really seen as a really positive of this model. Um, the access to the kitchen for people that did have good access was really seen as a real enabler to being more independent in home-based tasks. Um, the, the technology was consistently by the five of the six people we spoke to seen as very, very useful, even though we saw that intuitive use issue, the user interface was quite hard to follow, particularly for people with cognitive impairment, you had to get through multiple pages to say close the blinds, as I gave the example of. Um, and that's something I know Summer Foundation are working on for the next model, as are the TAC. Um, but certainly people all said it actually makes me feel more independent. We used a psychosocial rating scale to look at um, people's use of their technology. I feel more independent, I feel more in control than I did without the technology. So we are seeing some positive impact even though there are some teething issues and some training needs. Um, and that idea of being in control of who comes and goes was really key with the technology. But certainly that um, you're living on your own now was something that came up consistently across the group as feeling different. Um, there's not really anyone around, you've got, to, you've got to go out and see people. So certainly in the context of transition planning, I think it's a really key focus if people are living, moving from shared settings to their own homes. And this was a comment around that neighbour connection that I don't see much of anyone really in this apartment block. Sometimes I might go out or come in, but might pass them when I go shopping, but really wasn't connecting. And this was a, this is an apartment block that has a monthly tenants um, barbecue. So it has, it has this sort of focus on social connection, but it was something that was still seen as an area that people wanted to look at more. All right, so I'm gonna finish today just to point to some next pieces of research that we're involved in. Um, and they focus primarily on model of support. And uh, as I said earlier, I think um, there's a lot of work we can do around good built design, the use of technology to enable control and independence, but also we need to take a very strong and sustained focus on the model of support people are uh, receiving. So the first model that I'm gonna talk about that we're just about to start evaluating, <coughs> it's a model that we received um, supported accommodation innovation funding for to build down on the border of Monash Peninsula campus in 2012. So that was a federal grant to look at funding capital housing development for people with disability. Um, and we secured a $2 million grant to build six dwellings on a block of land on the edge of the Monash Peninsula campus. Those are ready for occupancy next month. And a key focus of that model was that if the tenants want it, we have offered at no cost um, clinical training hours from OT, physio, nursing and social work students. So if people have a particular goal that they'd like some input for, we will then set up um, undergraduate clinical training hours to go with that goal um, and people can have that on top of the model of 24-hour shared support in that setting. So we've just got a Better Teaching, Better Learning grant to look at how you might use 
clinical training for both the benefit of developing skills of new grads um, within allied health fields as well as to the benefit of people with disability that are needing targeted support that might be able to be delivered through that clinical training. So that's something that we're about to start now. We're just waiting on um, tenant allocation for that through the Department of Human Services. Um, and then um, we'll start to talk to people about whether they'd be, like to be involved in uh, a pilot of that model. And we're looking at using some of Osborne Sloan and Associates training packaging to actually train up the, um, the undergraduate clinicians that will go into that model. Um, so that housing model was a collaboration as part of that grant that we received. It, it had to have a relationship between a housing provider, MA Housing, Urella are the direct support provider, Monash OT department providing the clinical training to tenants that would like it and evaluating it and the Summer Foundation were involved in um, design input and evaluation. Um, so and that the reason the government, federal government set up the um, funding agreement that way was that they wanted to work to separate the model of housing from the support. So tenancy and building is managed by MA Housing while the direct support is managed by Urella. Um, and I've been through those other details. Again, we've got um, all of the dwellings have been set up with home automation, security and communication system technology. Um, so the, the dwellings have been enabled, but the actual, so all the wiring's been put in place, but only the technology will be put in place once we know whether a tenant actually needs that or not. The next model I just wanted to point to was a model of, that my colleague Sue Sloan has focused um, on over the last three plus years, which is a smaller um, residential model, which um, we are going to be presenting the three-year outcome data of that model of support at ASBE, the Australasian Society of Brain Injury Conference um, in July in Sydney. But I wanted to point you to this model because it does look again at, at the direct support staff model and how particularly you can... Um, sustain a consistent model of support. So as I said, this is a model that was designed by um, and developed by Osborne Sloan for people with significant cognitive behavioural impairments who might otherwise enter aged care or secure settings. Um, it's staffed by allied health assistants with an allocation of weekly OT and neuropsychology input within the model. Um, and the focus of that model of support is on positive behavioural routines, using the community approach to participation to build those valued life roles and starting to look at embedded um, opportunities for supported <coughs> employment models um, stemming from this sort of hub and spoke model that's been established in that setting. So as I said, the three-year outcome data on that model um, is showing some promising signs for people with very significant support needs around their changes in level of participation and also level of independence in, in daily tasks and we'll be presenting that at ASBE in July. So I'm about 10 minutes over time and I'm going to close now. Um, so um, I guess what I would say in closing is I've taken you through today some different pieces of evaluation work we've been doing to try and build evidence around the, the range of models of housing and support that might be possible for people with brain injury. A sustained model of daily support which focuses on building skills and valued social life roles is really key to influencing community integration outcomes of people. We know that both brain injury and the model of housing and support they go into is going to affect their outcomes and we need to have a particular focus on this area. 
And I guess what we are proposing is that rather than building only segregated models, there needs to be a mainstream housing um, strategy that includes accessible design principles and the use of integrated technologies in new housing developments nationally. Um, this will allow people to move across housing over time if there is more accessible and affordable housing available to them. But certainly as these new models develop, we should be evaluating those to build an evidence base of tenant experiences and um, try and really look at the outcomes for people, what has worked well, what could be improved and how these learnings might be applied in future design. As I said, that Senate inquiry last week stated that access, access to affordable housing is a matter of national importance and it should be a national economic issue that needs to be central and cross-cutting theme of government and it's not at the moment. So this is a big gap in what we've been talking about today. So a coordinated national strategy to increase access to well-located affordable housing is necessary if we're going to increase options for people with disability to live across a range of settings in their community. So at this point in time, I'm going to um, take some comments, questions, discussion. Um, again, just ask you if you wanted to raise any questions or discussion, if you could just say your name and where you're from. And I'll just repeat your question for the audio recording if anyone, or comment if anyone has any. Oh, thank you for that insight, yeah. Yep. Uh, Joan Tierney. Um, Libby, this is just fantastic, but the comment I want to make, and it won't be a surprise to any of us in the room, is that people and those that I know that moved into the development had a very extensive amount of specialised slow stream rehab to prepare them from when they had that catastrophic injury to a point in time where they had the skills and self-confidence and ability to move into such a housing model. Yep. And it concerns me when I hear that the rehab input is unlikely to be one of the funded areas through NDIS. And in future, now it is, in Victoria, now it is much harder to get people timely access to slow to recover therapy services. Um, and they're not going, possibly not going to get it through NDIS, how are we going to get people from the point of catastrophic injury to a point where they can move on and have a life as you're describing now? Joan, that's such a good point. So I'm just going to repeat the key points of that just for the transcript, which is that um, people with severe brain injury need a lifetime approach to their rehabilitation in order to develop skills to be able to transition across housing settings over time. And the NDIA at this point in time are saying they won't fund allied health input um, for ongoing rehabilitation goals. They'll focus some target, they'll fund some targeted input. 
Um, that's something we are talking specifically to the NDIA about because it, it is a really big problem in the model that they're proposing. And this whole health disability interface in the NDIS is a big, big issue both in the community for people accessing allied health for slow stream rehabilitation, but as well as that interface from people moving from hospital to home. So you're absolutely right. It's a really big issue. The Slow to Recover program impacted significantly on that area as well as TAC previously funding some um, longer term targeted slow stream rehab for this group. So I think you're absolutely correct. And I'd say it's an area that we are pushing hard on with the NDIA. We've been working with BrainLink um, to develop a position paper on what are the longer term needs of people living in the community after brain injury in Victoria, based on some other research we've been doing on pathways out of hospitals with BrainLink. Um, and we hope to um, invoice those exact same messages because it's a really big issue. Um, so, um, so Dawn's just asking, were the initial participants in that housing demonstration model allocated through DHS's DSR or uh, their disability service registry or um, were they just chosen? What was really striking for the Summer Foundation was it was actually really hard to identify tenants for that model. We thought we were going to be... <laughs> Um, you know, uh, inundated. <laughs> um, what we found was that it was really important for people to visit the model to see what it looked like because for some people they just said, I don't think I could actually do this yet. And to Joan's point, maybe it was yet or maybe it was not at all. Um, so we had approached DHS and worked with them through the DSR. In the end, we had to, it took us a number of months to find people that wanted to enter the model and were suitably able to enter the model at that point in time based on the, the need to be able to activate a button to receive support rather than having that line of sight support. So, um, so in the end, uh, the initial approach was it was going to be through the DSR. Um, in the end, it actually was a matter of uh, is there anyone that, that you know, would be suitable for this model that would like to look at it? So visiting the model's been really key. Um, obviously the TAC took a different approach. With the Monash housing model, it's been really complex again. And if anyone knows, like Mary Woolridge announced that $2 million grant for that housing and it was actually stated on the media release it's for young people living at risk of placement in nursing homes. Um, but the aim from the state government point of view who are funding the recurrent support was that they'll use a DSR to identify potential tenants. What we've found to date is that they've nominated people that actually it wouldn't be appropriate for them to live in their own apartment based on their significant and high levels of behaviours of concern. So it's something we're working on with DHS to look at how we can actually assist them to think about the opportunity of that Monash model and how you might look at a DSR and then consider people that might be um, suitably matched to that model. So it is an issue. Hi, I'm Julia Collinshall. I volunteer with the choir um, that has a lot of people in it with acquired brain injury. Um, it's not strictly related to housing, but was interested in your comments about the use of technology and just wondering whether you've looked at people's use of social media as a way of lessening isolation. Yeah, so thanks Julie. Um, what's been interesting, my colleague Beck Wood is here, or was here, she's still here? 
She's gone. She's gone. <laughs> um, um, this is an area, so yeah, we wanted to get the normative data on what were Australians using as far as um, internet enabled, video link enabled and phone enabled technology for social connection. So we took a particular focus on that with the CIQ revised. Um, we then have been using that with people with traumatic brain injury through some work Sophie here at the front has been doing in our, in our research. And um, certainly we're hearing from people it's an opportunity. We're also hearing there's challenges associated with it for people, particularly with cognitive impairment. Um, and trying to work through some of those has been fairly key. Um, so I just had a thought on your question though. Your question was, are people... Using the social yeah. Yeah, so sorry, that's what I was going to say. So Beck's just finished um, a year of research as a first study within a PhD and she actually did an, um, a survey of um, shared supported accommodation settings across Victoria, so both government and um, privately funded um, shared supported accom. And what we saw was there was a really low usage rate of technology and really low access to internet connectivity in those settings. So, and we, we know in the broader disability data that people with disability because of their low um, incomes and perhaps they're a need for someone to support them to access technology aren't using technology as much. So certainly it's lower usage um, and it is, it, but there are also then, I guess we've done some work with Telstra the year before last, interviewing people with brain injury and their families about how they are using technology and there were some real challenges in that too, some issues around um, particularly bill, bill shock and, and data loads of people that may not remember how much they've downloaded or so on. So there's some really significant issues to manage but we're seeing lower usage rates um, in, in particularly in SSA and I guess what we think um, is that there is an opportunity with the existing um, shared supported accommodation models or for people living in the community to, to look at how they might use technology but it needs that targeted support it needs and it needs ongoing evaluation monitoring and grading so in the context of Joan's point around that slow stream rehabilitation model people will need training to build their skills in that area if it's a new uh, it's a new area for them Hi I'm Erica Dalian. Hi Erica <laughs> Um, I can't talk specifically to that. So with regards to the post-occupancy evaluation, we were only funded to do an, a post-occupancy evaluation of the TAC apartments. We were funded for the outcome data across the other apartments. So, so. did you know what the TAC, because I've got a client who's in those units now, and TAC have been quite reluctant to look at adaptable living spaces because they don't use Okay, that's interesting. That's really interesting, yeah. I haven't been aware of that. I've heard quite a different experience. And, and we've also, we actually, I didn't put these plans up, but we actually marked up the individual <laughs> customisations that were made across apartments. And for some it was very small adaptions, but there was one apartment there was some significant customisations done. So it would be worth even talking to the Ripple team, I would say, the actual residential independence team at TAC about your specific areas that you think could benefit the person. Mm. More so the levels of frustration for clients, mm. but it's interesting when you say that it's like it's 
universal design that you have to adaptable your yeah An issue, yeah, yeah. And it's going to impact outcomes. If people can't have the environment customised to their specific needs, they're not going to be participating at the same level as they would be. So, yes, and if their needs change over time, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's a really significant issue. We've been really focusing on that. particular adaptive equipment to help enable him to access the iPad more. Mm -hmm. There's actually been no support to make sure that he is using it more. Yeah. And again, we've been really pushing that quite heavily. It's an, it's an area that, I mean, they've invested significantly. And again, it's a lower cost technology to the environmental control units that I used to prescribe um, clinically. So it's definitely low cost to compare, but it's still a significant investment yeah. in technology to enable people to control their own environment. So we've certainly... Exactly. And we've certainly been talking to them about how they can build their ongoing training, both in this first model and in subsequent models. So it's interesting feedback and... Um, that, that actually hasn't been happening for one person because I think it will become a focus again because we've certainly been able to show them that, that usage rates are lower for particular people and that they need more support. And particularly that example of someone just saying, oh, I didn't know I could open my blinds, it's a lost opportunity. Joe from Austin Street. Just wondering really if you had any evidence about people moving from an SSA to a more independent living, they had better outcomes if they actually went to a transitional unit prior. Mm. None of these, none of these people did, um, and but I certainly clinically have used transitional units. Um, previously with some good success, it would depend on the individual, I think. But yes, yeah, certainly none of these did. So no, I haven't. <laughs> Even. Absolutely, I should have mentioned that. Um, so we actually, I'd hoped for this, the reason I'd asked for this presentation at this timing point was we were going to have the business intelligence data on cost pre-move and then six, 12 and 18 months post-move, but it's not quite prepared yet. So I had hoped I'd be presenting that to you today. Um, so, but this is a big challenge, I think, for our, our um, clients that we see that aren't in a compensable system. So in the compensable system, with the permission of the person, I can use their claim number and get dollar for dollar what is spent on them. But it's really hard to actually elicit the dollar cost of someone that's actually pegging together support across a range of systems. Um, and I think it's a real problem for us if we want to demonstrate how we can actually impact cost of care whilst building quality of life. It's actually how we can best cost that. And I've just got a meeting next week with the health economist to actually try and look at that with the, with the um, non-compensable group because um, it is a really hard to get actual costs if you don't have that cost data. So the NDIA will have that data on participants. The TAC have that data down to a dollar. And as I said, we're just, they're about to release that. So we had asked tenants their permission to actually use their claim number to look at cost by time point, which they were willing to do. It's yep. hard for me to 
willingness or to recommend an SRS, particularly with the vulnerability, um, with a lot of other people from mental health, with mental health issues or drug and alcohol affected mm. living within the same unit. So um, you, Lynn was just talking about um, the issue of people in that over 50 age bracket who yet are still youngish adults um, and what are the options for them when they may not um, have the range of options available. So we saw that with the Young People in Nursing Homes initiative. It was initially targeted to people under 50 years and once you look at people just over that 50 year bracket you see the numbers go up significantly. It was really interesting, we've just been doing some work with the TAC to look at their numbers and they're really identifying that this ageing group that's been living with their disability for some time is going to be a new group that they need to think about their accommodation strategy for because as you say, nursing home placement is not the best option, often SRS may not be the best option for them, but what are the other options? And I think particularly, you know, you think about, Sue and I talk about this a bit, you know, do you really want to be living with four other people when you're in your mid-50s or where do you want to live, what do you want to do? Like, how, you know, how do you want your life to be? It's really hard to have, have choice at this stage. So that is a particularly, a subgroup that I think is particularly not well serviced at the moment, yeah. And I haven't got any solutions for you. <laughs> All right, yeah, I think we should, yeah, yeah. No more? Going, going, going? <laughs> okay, um, oh, thank you, Libby. I think that's been great this morning. And just congratulations to you and the Summer Foundation team that we are getting this really rich data that is kind of proving what clinical people... For known. I <laughs> 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 know. It's been our gut feeling for, you know, many, many years. It's just fantastic. Mm. And um, thank you for so much effort that you've put into it. And thank you for coming today. And thank you, we've got quite a good audience mm. today. Mm. Excellent. So come along to ASBE in Sydney. Yes, and you'll hear Sue talking. Thank you, Libby. Thank you. If I was really informed this morning, I'd be able to say what the next breakfast club is. Jacinta Douglas is presenting at the next Thank breakfast you. club. Right. And we were talking about... Uh, that's a, I've, that is a fantastic presentation. <laughs> She's in Jacinta's. Turkey, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a bunch of in Turkey. Yeah. Great presentation. Around social, is it social communication and social networks and particularly yeah. identity, it's relationship Around to... Around identity yeah, yeah, reformation yeah. Yes. following um, brain, brain injury. injury. So yeah. um, come along to the next one. <laughs> You will, um, Jacinta always gives a good talk <laughs> regardless of the topic, but this one's a particularly good one. Uh, right, so thanks, thanks everyone. Um,